morning. Father, we come before you, and Lord, what an amazing day. What an amazing day. If we can just agree, snowy day outside, cold, uh, you know, various various things passing through our community. God, if we can just agree that we just gather together and grant us the warmth of your spirit in here, Lord, how can we not have that based on the worship, based on the praise? Lord, next, that next to last song we sang, lift every voice and sing. And, and, and Lord, I know there was discussion at the time whether or not it should actually be our national anthem. What a great song it is. But Lord, we know who you are, and you're confirming that to us even at this hour. And so, Father, I pray, how can we set in here without the power of your Holy Spirit through the Word of God to do the work in our lives? So, Father, we give you this time. We pray you'd find in us soft hearts. Lord, open our eyes. We ask it in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated in the Lord's presence, and as you sit down, you can uh, open your Bible to the book of Romans, chapter fourteen. You know, Ro- uh, Elon Musk decided one time he wanted to make a surprise tour of his Tesla plant, and so he walked in. He noticed this young man just kind of lazily leaning up against a wall, and he's thumbing through stuff on the timeline on his phone. And so Elon was obviously upset by this young man's laziness, and so he, Elon walks over he pulls out his wallet he pulls out five thousand dollars he gives to the man said there that's your severance now get out of here i never want to see you back in here again so without a word man stuffed the bills in his pocket and and he left and the warehouse manager was standing nearby so he kind of came over and elon said well how long have you had that lazy boy working for us Manager said, well, he doesn't work here, but you just tipped the pizza delivery driver $5,000. So all I'm trying to say is, before you judge a book by its cover, at least read the table of contents. Because in the 14th of Romans, Paul takes us to school, not only on our relationship to the Lord, but on our responsibility to other believers. And Paul exhorts all believers to fight the good fight of faith. What is that? Three things I will suggest to you. It is a fight by faith against the devil's deceptions. It is a fight of faithfulness in your walk with the Lord. And it is a fight for the faith which was once delivered to the saints, which we have received in the Bible that God gave us. And outside of that fight... Well, almost no church fight is a good fight. But right here in Romans 14, we see how to continue striving together for the faith of the gospel. So let me start off with an experiential explanation of strife versus strength. What is the secret that brings about a unified body in Christ? Paul makes his strongest appeal in this chapter. He does it to the strongest church in the empire, and he does it for the strongest element on this planet, the power of God through the gospel. But what if we fall short of that this next year? Well, first off, notice, if you will, and this is number one, strife within the body destroys the witness of the church. And this is true whether it's only internally or expressed on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. 
Because then, then the world is thinking, ha, huh, friendship, Baptist church, but are they? Fellowship, Baptist church, but do they? Harmony, Baptist church, but is there? In his autobiography, Mahatma Gandhi tells about during his student days at Oxford, he read the gospel seriously and he considered becoming a Christian because he believed that the teachings of Jesus could be the solution to the terrible caste system which was dividing his people in India. So one Sunday, he decided to attend services at the campus Anglican church and talk to the minister about what, what it took to become a Christian. And when he entered the sanctuary, the usher refused to seat him and suggested that he go worship with his own kind. And Gandhi left the church and he wrote down his conclusion. He said, you know, if Christians have a caste system also, then I might as well just stay a Hindu. And destroying our witness, that's not even the worst of it, because this is number two, second, second, strife within the body quenches the power of the Holy Spirit. It grieves the Holy Ghost. Not just by what comes out of your mouth audibly, but what comes over your feed verbally and pictorially. And so most evangelical churches do not decline because, because of persecution. They don't decline because of persecution from without. They decline from division within. Even 60 years after Martin King led marches and boycotts, Racial reconciliation still touches practically every page of our American newspaper. Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery. Governor George Wallace stood in the schoolhouse door. He stood at the entrance of the University of Alabama just to block black students from entering and enrolling. Students held a sit-in at the counter of the Woolworth-Steiner in Greensboro, North Carolina, deciding they would sit in and sit there until they were given service. A Klansman's bomb killed four girls in Sunday school, attending church in Birmingham. The Freedom Rioters, who rode through the South in Freedom Summer, they ended up being bullied, beaten, and their bus was burned. And racial discrimination and injustice still exists in our communities today. We know that because the terms hate crimes and, and racial profiling have become part of the American vocabulary. Plus, an anti-Semite held hostages at a synagogue yesterday during Sabbath services. So in the final analysis, this is number three. Strife within the body only serves the agenda and furthers the kingdom of Satan. Now let me open a window on that word because one boy had two cats and the two cats were always fighting with each other. And since these two cats were always fighting, he got fed up. He got so fed up, he tied those two cats by the tail and then he threw them over the clothesline. I mean, his thinking was, I'm going to come out tomorrow and these two cats will have learned how to get along. But when he went out the next morning, all he found over that clothesline was the ends of two tails. And that is a sad tale. Because Paul had to tell the Galatians, watch Galatians 5.15, But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. 
Take heed because Paul is talking about spiritual cannibalism, Christian cannibalism, biting over appearance, over ancestry, over age, over achievement, over affluence. So here's a dealio, and this is just bottom line. Letter A, Jesus desires us to be united. John 14, or John 17. Second, true believers delight in love and unity. Psalm 133, that is your happy spot. It is the place that despite any circumstance, you find the most joy. You can, you can retreat there. You can find a place of rest in the rest of the storm. And, and therefore, let us see, Satan dreads a body that is unified in love. D.L. Moody one time said, I wonder what God could do with a Christian totally surrendered to him. And since D.L. Moody went on to surrender himself to God totally, he, he took England and one continent in one hand and America in the other hand and just drew, drew them together in revival. I think it has yet to be seen what God can do with a church that is totally unified in love. Because a unified church is a spiritual force that shatters the gates of hell. But with all the present opportunities for division and strife, how can a church with such diversity remain one unified body? Well, let me take you to our text as we tackle that, that issue today. Because, and this is our thesis for today's study, the beauty of Christ's body is its diversity. But the hindering factor is immaturity. I mean, we like to think it's ignorance so that we can cure it with education. But a lot of educated people are really immature. And if you're sitting next to one, just keep looking straight up here at me. They will never know you were thinking about them. And every church has people who are weak in the faith due to immaturity. And that means three key things. They're weak in their ability to trust God. They are weak in their faithfulness in ministry for God. And they're weak in their understanding of the word of God. Remember, that is the good fight. So how do we deal with baby believers? Uh, what do we do with high-maintenance saints? Paul principalizes the answer for us with three guiding lights which love gives us. How do we ignite low-light believers who are in danger of stumbling themselves and taking others down with them? Are you a source of division or conflict? Is it legitimate? I mean, if you are a baby... And a baby's, you know, just born and you're, maybe you haven't been through, you haven't signed up for discipleship yet. You haven't been discipled yet. Okay, we understand that. We understand you cry a lot and at inconvenient times. We understand you'll have to be fed, fed milk because you can't digest meat. And we understand that you have to be carried because you can't walk on your own. And we understand we have to change your poopy pants on a regular basis. Okay, we understand that. But what, what do we have to do? to manage immaturity, move you into ministry, and manufacture fraternity. Watch, verse 1, Romans 14, verse 1. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputation. So this is number one, love demands we embrace those who are weak in the faith. Do not engage another believer for the purpose of just disputing their opinion. Because in emphasizing family relationships, Paul notes how all believers are not equal. Now, we are all created equal in Christ, 
but our growth is conditioned on getting in the Word of God and getting the Word of God in us. So we do not all grow equally. So if God's goal is a harmonious, unified body, what is it that prevents that? How do you know if you are acting with weak faith? Three ways. First, letter A, you argue over incidentals. See, these Gentiles came from a pagan, pagan background, and without, you know, it kind of goes without saying that was loose. In their culture, you, you, you created a God to endorse what you wanted to do, and then invest your lifestyle, your vain lifestyle, with spiritual significance. Therefore, you had a whole pantheon of gods to choose from. But the Jews, they came from a monotheistic background provided by the Old Testament. And to them, any idolatry was moralized as immoral and it was an unpardonable sin. So they understood their absolutes and they understood God has commandments to be kept. And so they were more strict. And when those two groups came together in church, they did not automatically drop their preferences, their taboos, their cultural fence that they had built around their righteous lifestyle. So it's kind of like getting married. Sometimes couples make the mistake of expecting the other person to transform into their brother or sister because they said, I do. But, you know, none of us marries our brother or sister. And because we do not, every marriage is cross-cultural. We come from two different families and two different neighborhoods and two different sets of opinions. And the real mistake is if we set out on a crusade to change our spouse instead of letting God change them if he wants to. So to be clear, Paul lists some of the incidentals in Rome right here. Look at verse 3. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let, speaking of eating meat sacrificed at an idol's temple, or even eating unclean instead of eating kosher, and let not him which eateth not those unclean things judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. You cannot impose your conscience on other people's choices. And this was important when the early church was half Jewish, because the Jewish half was taught that eating unkosher was morally sin. But the formerly pagan Romans didn't grow up with any of that. So one person judged another as to something incidental to the gospel. Now let me illustrate that irrefutable idea. Years ago, I got a letter from a former church member and it says, you know, Alan, I was a rock guitar player for a number of years before I got saved. I realize now how deceived I was by Satan in the area of music. And it wasn't until I destroyed every single rock, rock CD that, that uh, uh, you know, the Lord opened my eyes. But I attended one of your services. I was completely shocked to find that they were playing non-Christian rock and roll music, which you hear on the radio. And the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from all appearance of evil. So I think it's your incumbent duty as shepherd of the flock to provide the very best for God's people who are under your leadership. Well, okay, I try and do that. But regarding musical styles, all I can say is my conscience was not smitten. And just like there's no such thing as Christian mathematics... By tone, 
or by beat, there's no such thing as Christian music. I mean, you can't define from the Word of God what defines Christian music by tone and, and, and from that which is not. I mean, the lyrics may exalt Christ or may not, not exalt Christ. But music is music, just like gravity is gravity. And in a church like ours, so diverse in backgrounds and cultures, that has to be okay in order for the body to keep from imploding. So right here, Paul sets up the rules which guide us and guard us in issues of personal liberty. Watch, verse 5. One man esteemeth one day above another. Like, like Saturday, for example, the Sabbath. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day to the Lord he that's not regarded. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks, and he eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. And we still struggle over dates and dating systems today. I mean, should I observe Christmas, or should I let my kids, you know, trick-or-treat? False prophets are all about their dates because they get donations based on that date. So they set a prediction and because certain people want that to be the desired outcome, they even send that person money in order to get the message out to others. And then when it proves they are a false prophet, they just move on to another date. Verse 7, For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore die. We are the Lord's. Now that is a statement of priorities and of purpose. No one of you should be living unto yourself. Statement of priority. Live unto the Lord so that you can die unto the Lord. Statement of purpose. Paul's trying to sift, shift, and lift your perspective. Because most of the stuff that believers battle about is not essential, it is not fundamental, it is often not even biblical or doctrinal. Second, second, you know your faith is weak. And this is, look at verse 10. When thou dost judge thy brother, or when thou dost set at naught thy brother, why are you doing that? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So this is letter B, you apply prohibitions. Paul says, stop getting a little close clusters and criticizing others. Give freedom to another believer to be different from you and even weaker than you. See, a weak faith always has to set legalistic boundaries for itself just to, just to protect itself, and that's okay. And, but while that is your personal prerogative, it is not appropriate for you to dismiss or set aside those who do not stay within your boundaries. So what had happened was, it was not the Ten Commandments which divided them. It was the inferences and inferential applications of those commandments, which they made just like the Pharisees had been doing. So in Baptisthood, we add layer upon layer of what is really cultural taboos on top of our Christianity. And that's not true spirituality. Our Christianity gets calcified, and we, we stop defining our spirituality biblically 
and instead define it by the rules that we can keep in our own flesh. Hello, somebody. That's Baptist barnacles. I'm just saying, uh, you know, finally, your faith is weak. And this is letter C, when you act judgmental. In Kentucky, it's against the law to throw eggs at a public speaker. Sometimes I, sometimes I wish I preached in Kentucky. I would at least ha- have that protection. In Booger Hollow, Kentucky, the law requires every person in the town to take a bath at least once a year. In Shawnee, Oklahoma, it is illegal for three or more dogs to meet on private property without the owner's consent. In Delaware, it's against the law to pawn your wooden leg. And in California, it is illegal to sleep in the kitchen, but it's not illegal to cook in the bedroom. Go figure, go figure. So we may be better lawbreakers, but we are not better lawmakers. Let me give you the one verse solution to everything that has happened in the last two years as far as the church is concerned. Look at verse 13. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. So in the church, we don't judge people based on political persuasion or personal preference or economic status or social or cultural issues. Why? Because you know why Paul, you know, and they had politics going on in the empire. I mean, we are today exactly like they were, they were back then. They had the optimates and the populares. They had their two major political parties. It was getting exactly as fractious as it is for us in America today. He doesn't even bring that up. That is so low on the totem pole. He doesn't deign it as something even to be addressed because we are a new kingdom. So there's some things you don't pray about, like verse 13. Just stop it. So determine, decide, resolve not to put an offense, not to put an obstacle in anybody else's way. We're strangers to what happens down here because we're pilgrims on this planet. This world is not our home. And we will all come back with Jesus to establish the only righteous government which will ever be seen. Therefore, it's more important that you do not make your brother sister stumble. More important than it is that you either, A, exercise your personal freedom, or B, judge the exercise of their free will according to your conscience. Now, having said all that, there is a balance to all this. So, so let me give you a tip. The tip is this. Watch their feet. Look at their feet and watch their walk. Because if their feet are not moving, you cannot make them trip. So if their feet are not moving with us in ministry, then you can discount their criticism by that much and just keep on moving. And while you cannot condemn them, and you may need to correct them, and may use your best judgment to help them. So this will absolutely work, because look at verse 12. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Toward the twilight of his life, the great statesman Daniel Webster attended a lunch with younger government leaders and the chairman of that luncheon turned to uh, Mr. Webster and said, what is the greatest thought 
that has ever crossed your mind? Quick as a flash, he answered, my greatest thought is my accountability to God. At the judgment seat of Christ, it's not the quantity of what you have that matters. It is the quality of what you've done for Jesus. What have you done with the gospel? What have you done with the everlasting life God gave you when you got saved? And the Bible does talk about having discernment and walking in wisdom. So what that means, and this is our first point for study, is that as you grow strong and overcome your weaknesses... You're able to make spiritual judgments without having a judgmental spirit. So forget about your own personal agenda. Fall in line with God's kingdom agenda for the gospel. Jesus will come back and the whole world will then belong to him as his inheritance. But the only chance that we have to populate that kingdom with eternal souls And subjects for him is through your life right now. Do not get deflected. So love demands we embrace the weak. And second, second guiding light is in verse 19. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. So this is number two. Love demands we edify those who are weak in the faith. And I know it's much more monetarily profitable. It gets more likes, more followers, and more contributions for you to build a ministry on attacking other people. And that is the standard cable news model today. But that makes so, that brings so much disdain and so much damage to the gospel. And I, I am a shepherd guarding the flock. Yes, I am. And I will, I will act to guard the flock. But I am not a bulldog guarding a junkyard. Hello, somebody. So I make moral judgments. I make doctrinal judgments. But I can do that with the simple words of the King James Bible, while at the same moment I embrace the weak in love. How do you respond? Do you chase after the things that will bring peace? See, our problem is, our uh, new Roman mythology, our American mythology is that if you chase after the things that bring peace, then that says you are weak. When in actual fact, the person of peace is the one who's the most strong. So some people enjoyed eating meat, even if it was sacrificed at a pagan temple to a devil-empowered God. Other people felt obligated to observe the Jewish high holy days because the temple in Jerusalem was not yet destroyed. And the problem is when everyone wants their own way in things in which Jesus has no preference. So here's how Paul deals with it by understanding two things. Look at verse 14. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if, if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. So first, letter A. Understand there is a tragedy to avoid. It's a matter of perception and not principle. There is nothing morally or biblically wrong with a lot of things. But if it feels wrong to you because your conscience smites you for it, then do not do it. 
and be generous in spirit to somebody else who does. Count it up to your potential weakness, not their alleged impiousness. Because this is how the Holy Spirit works in your conscience to make you grow. If the Holy Spirit has not freed your conscience based on your understanding of the Word of God, then do not buck the system. Work with the freedom the Holy Spirit gives you so that your preference does not defile your conscience and and keep you from being able to grow. Second letter B, understand there is a truth to accept. Verse 18, For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable of God and approved of men. God is not concerned about the regimen of your diet or your days. The reality of your devotion to him, that is what he looks at. And this, that is always an inside job. So the focus of your faith has to be on matters which matter. Because here's our second point for study. The things that really count are the things that bring harmony to the family. So do not destroy what God is doing in somebody else's life for the sake of getting them on the same page and the same opinion about uh, incidental things as you. You can be used of God to engage and to edify, but you got to let the Holy Spirit do the persuading. So verse 20, For meat, destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure. But it is evil for that man who eateth with offense, like, like a Jewish person might do. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Some brethren become confused if you exercise your freedom in front of them. So the higher you are in visibility, the more conscious you have to be in society or in social media. And this is such a powerful principle in maintaining body unity because without this unity, we lose our effective power. We lose our power in society. Love demands. We not only embrace but edify. And in the final analysis, verse 22, Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. So this is number three. Love demands that we esteem those who are weak in the faith. So if you don't like drum sets and beatboxes on the platform of worship, okay, carry that as a conviction personally. But catch the great principle here in the last verse of this chapter, verse 23. And he that doubteth is damned if eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Figure it out that way. In order to do anything, you got to trust God with what you're doing. you got to be confident in your conscience that you are pleasing God. So even if there is nothing wrong with it, if you can't trust God in doing it, it will hinder your personal growth. And this concept is what keeps us from becoming robots and substituting religion and ritual for a relationship with Jesus. So here's a very helpful summary of the guidelines gleaned from this chapter. Everything is clean, but certain restraints always govern our freedom. I mean, even in society, even politically, because liberty has to be exercised with responsibility. So here's five guidelines for us to do that in the body of Christ. Number one, consider public responsibility to others, verse 7. 
Then personal accountability to Christ, verse 10. Then the impression it gives, verse 16. The influence on other believers, verse 19. And finally, verse 23, what is said in the word of God. What is the guiding light that gets to the magnificent expression of God's power through our unity delivering the gospel? That guiding light is love, just like we saw in chapter 13. But the chapter that is the pinnacle of this epistle is chapter 14 because it gives us the example of how that light guides a diverse church to act in harmony as one body in the mission of God's ministry together. My time is up. I thank you for yours. Every head bowed, every eye closed. You know, in religion, it's all about rules and regulations and rituals. But the kingdom of God is not based on that. The kingdom of God is not based on what you do. It is based on who you are. You are either a child of God or you are not. I mean, you're, a child, you're either a child of God by faith in what Christ did for you on the cross, and you are born again, or else your father is still Adam. God looks on your heart today. Do you know him? Have you come to Christ and been saved? All you have to do to become a Christian is to trust Jesus for exactly what he promised, everlasting life. That means all you have to do today is pray. You just exercise faith by praying and saying, God, save me for Jesus' sake. Today I believe in Jesus for what he promises me, everlasting life. I trust Jesus and I'm placing all my weight on his finished work on the cross to save me. So here, Jesus, I give you my life because I believe. And if you pray that right now, if you pray that today, God will put you in Christ. He will put the Holy Spirit in you. All you have to do is pray and ask him to save you be born again go ahead and stand let's have a word of prayer Father I pray today that for anyone who has prayed Lord that you'll just wrap them in your arms of love wrap your arms of love around them Lord I pray that by what the word of God says and by the operation of the Holy Spirit that they will know they have eternal life And because they have that new life in Christ, they are a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. They can walk out of here different than they walked in. And they can start opening themselves to the Word of God in such a way that it will change their personality. And it will make them like Christ. So, Lord, I pray if they've prayed that, they'll meet us here at the front either while we sing or, or at, right after. Let us record that and rejoice with them and give them my book on next steps for new believers. Next Sunday, we'll be back on the topic of the Holy Spirit. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 14. So from Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 14, and I'm going to show you God's love language. I'm going to show you that it's not what you think. I'm going to show you the love language of the Holy Spirit. Invite somebody to come with you. This is life to you. This can be new life to them.
Father, I thank you again for what you've done in our midst. Lord, continue to work in us, speak to us, and use us. As we go from here this Sunday, we ask it in Jesus' name. 